You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you so much for joining us and a very warm welcome to a brand new format on the exchange. So this episode is part of our new series, Reflections, where we'll be breaking down some of the incredible writing that we have across RA. There are so many wonderful stories covered on the site every month. I know that it can be hard to keep up. So we will be picking out articles that you might have missed, sitting down with the writer to get all that behind the scenes information on the story. So I'm thinking what couldn't be included in the original piece, how our writers research these stories, plus any major updates since the piece was originally published. At the end of today's episode, we will hear an excerpt from the original piece. So stay tuned for that. First, though, I'd like to introduce Kiana Mickles, staff writer, who is joining me on Reflections today. Hi, Kiana. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Excited to have you on. So you have been on the podcast before. You were interviewing Jada Lorraine alongside Naishka, who is our colleague as well. So the listeners may have heard you before, Um, but perhaps you could just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you kind of tend to write about on RA. Sure. Um, Yeah, I've been a staff writer at RA for now nearly three years. Um, A lot of my work is pretty locally focused. Um, When I started, um, my goal was to champion um, New York artists, um, like East Coast artists that were doing interesting things with club music, um, ballroom music, um, and techno. um, And I felt like this scene here um, deserved um, a bit more attention because there's so much much interesting things happening here. Um, So it's it's been really cool to see people um yeah like really interested in what's going on in new york right now because um there's um a really uh uh beautiful scene here Mm, absolutely it's so good to hear about um so you're on reflections today because towards the start of this year you wrote a piece um which was called bossa nova civic club rising from the ashes Um, And we thought that it would be a perfect time to kind of get an update on New York's nightlife scene since that article. But to start with, perhaps you could tell us a bit about why you wanted to write the original piece and the news around that moment in time. For sure, for sure. Well, I'm from New York, but I went to undergrad in Ohio. So my first experiences with nightlife um, started when I would visit the city during my breaks in college. And at the time, I was mainly attending events in Manhattan when nightlife was still centered there. Um, and as I got more involved in the scene, I would increasingly go out in Brooklyn and Queens, um, and I'd, I'd visit spots like The Glove, Transpico, Secret Project Robot, um, and Bossa. And, Many of the places um, I'd frequent back then were DIY venues that have either shuttered by now um, or have kind of faded into the background a bit um, of the scene. And for me, um, Basa was the one club that over the years had 
really continued to maintain its cultural significance to our scene and um, at the same time also kind of kept that DIY feel that I feel really defined the New York, um, defined New York in the early to mid tens. Um, yeah, and I found many of my favorite New York artists um, through events there, like um, thinking about like Ace MoMA, Question Mark, and practically all of the Disc Woman crew. Um, like those folks really um, practically found a second home there. Um, so yeah, it was important to me for many reasons. And when I heard about the fire, um, it was devastating and it um, became clear that this is an era, this is a moment of New York history that needs to be documented. Um, and I spoke with RA's editor-in-chief, Whitney Way, um, and she felt similarly and asked me to write a profile, essentially, on BASA. And so that happened. And yeah, it felt like a piece that should have been written a long time ago. Um, this is a club that was open seven days a week for almost a decade. So there was just a lot of history there. Uh, yeah, so when the uh, tragedy occurred, it, it made it um, very urgent, you know, to fill in this gap in the New York dance music archive. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about um, who you spoke to at the time for that piece and how you kind of built the story and how you investigated the story and the impact that you found that this incident with the fire had on the scene. For sure. So, um, of course, I spoke to John Barclay, who gave me um, uh, some details about, you know, um, what the situation um, was looking like now, like how much time they would probably need to, um, you know, open back up, um, which seems uncertain at, at the moment. Um, and uh, I spoke to him about, you know, how he initially found out about the fire and what the aftermath looks like. Um, I also spoke to former uh, residents um, or, um, yeah, or people who just played there enough to <laughs> um, be confused <laughs> as residents. Um, so I spoke to former resident uh, Moma Reddy, um, also known as White Stevens, um, DJ Question Mark, um, and uh, I also spoke to New Yorker staff writer Emily Witt, who wrote a beautiful piece on the return to nightlife last summer, so it felt um, to get her perspective on things. Um, also spoke to uh, former bartender Deanna Garcia and former resident bookworms um, who provided excellent background information about, you know, like what, uh, how the sound of uh, bossa changed, um, how the genres changed over time. Um, but I wasn't able to directly quote them in the piece, um, but would definitely like to shout them out. I thought it was important to 
take a deep dive into Boss's history um, and to give um, a really well-rounded um, uh, view of what the experience of going to Bassa was like um, from its opening um, in 20, uh, I believe 2012 um, to now. Um, so yeah, we. I explored everything from what the music sounded like, what the crowd looked like, um, who the residents were, and um, also contextualize Boss's role in New York dance music history. So I talk about Boss's impact as one of the first legal dance music clubs in Bushwick. And um, I also discuss um, Boss's struggles and ultimate success with repealing um, the extremely racist and archaic cabaret law in 2017. And that was really interesting um, because I realized um, in my research that this is a really monumental change that a lot of people um, aren't aware of, um, but the Cabaret Law was a dancing ban enacted in 1926 that made it illegal to permit dancing in any entertainment establishment without a license. And this was originally thought to target jazz clubs due to its restriction of traditional jazz instruments like wind and percussion. Um, and then in the 90s, a version of the law, um, which had been amended a few times in ex existence, um, was weaponized to shutter dance music clubs under Mayor Giuliani. Um, so with the help of John Barclay and Frankie Dekeja Hutchinson, who is the former booker at BASA and founder of the Femme Musician Collective Disc Woman, um, with their help, um, they really pushed for it to ultimately be repealed. Um, and when that happened in 2017, um, it paved the way for so many other clubs in the area um, to not only open, but to remain open. And I, I thought it was also, um, on a lighter note, uh, so important to <laughs> include some funny factoids about the club um, because one of the things that people loved about Bossa was John's unique sense of humor. So um, during the interview process, I actually had to redo two interviews due to some technological issues, which was, of course, incredibly stressful, but I'm ultimately grateful that I had one do-over interview with Frankie because she was the interviewee who informed me of the Is Bossa Poppin' Tumblr, um, which was an account that notified followers if a party at Bossa was either going off or flopping, you know, like, don't come. So we ended up discussing that at the very end of our second interview and got a really great laugh out of it. Uh, and then more seriously, I discussed Frankie's extraordinary impact on the club and how her booking practices um, really increase the amount of black 
queer and trans artists that played at BASA and also um, the amount of marginalized folks that felt comfortable playing there and um, yeah, att attending uh, BASA and seeing their friends play out. Mm hugely impactful individual and also a hugely impactful venue it sounds like um so this incident with the fire how would you say it kind of got in the way of the development of new york's you know exciting scene with more different people getting the chance to play do you reckon it had an impact in that way for sure for sure i think it was really difficult for artists to fathom what the New York scene would look like without BASA. Um, there are just countless artists, promoters, collectives, bartenders, door people in New York who were able to hone their craft there. So when they closed, it felt really sudden and it felt like, uh, like this critical piece of New York culture had vanished. Um, and what made BASA so special was that it was kind of known as a weeknight club. You know, people who knew BASA knew that weeknights were the local nights. Um, on those nights, there's more room for dancing. And there was also a better chance that you'd meet people on the dance floor that you knew were there purely for the lineup because maybe it's a Tuesday or Wednesday night and you know that everyone there has to be a bit selective about the parties they're going to that night because it could potentially screw up their sleep schedule for the rest of the work week. Um, so people going out on those nights at BASA typically weren't just kind of indiscriminately hopping around the Myrtle Strip, which made the events feel especially intimate. And in regards to the larger uh, scene, I, I think about DJs just starting out. Um, when I interviewed Wyatt, he said something poignant, um, explaining that as a budding DJ, you'll probably start at smaller gigs, at smaller clubs like mood ring, and once you start getting more traction, you'll maybe be asked to play a weeknight set at BASA. And then you basically know you've made it, or locally at least, if you're asked to play the club on a Friday or a Saturday night. So while BASA was known for being pretty laid back, people also took you seriously as a DJ when you were booked there. So I, I think that, you know, there's gonna be some um, shifts. Like, I, I think that there will be venues to ultimately um, replace that void. But now there kind of feels like a gap between the big venues that you have to be pretty established um, as a DJ to headline at, and then the smaller, more casual clubs. Mm, yeah, I'd be really curious to hear from your point of view, you know, what's the scene like at the moment? Like, are there any venues that are kind of filling this void or what is the, the nightlife scene saying? Right, well, 
When Bossa shuttered, I think many promoters and DJs turned to Rash, which was the newest club on Myrtle Avenue as a kind of replacement for the venue. And then four months into being open and not long after the Bossa fire, an arsonist attack completely incinerated Rash's interior. Um, so when that happened, it just further deepened a wound. Some of mm -hmm. us, I think, were just beginning to recover from after the loss of Bassa. Um, so yeah, I think one of the main changes in nightlife that I've seen after the loss of these two venues now is that there are definitely fewer late night events taking place during the week, um, at, at least in Bushwick, um, which was, you know, again, something that Bossa was known for. And um, yeah, for some context in New York, most clubs close their doors pretty early, like around 12 or 2 a.m. Um, from Monday through Thursday if they're hosting events then at all. Um, and now it seems like most people I know are primarily going out on the weekends and um, to bigger parties. And many of them are also, I think, consciously going to venues large enough to fit the New York weekend rush. So venues like Nowadays, Good Room, and Basement, which is uh, Knockdown Center's techno club. Um, but yeah, I've also seen some positive changes. There seem to be more crews here throwing events at DIY venues and warehouses, which is something that became less common or necessary after the cabaret law was repealed. So that's been pretty refreshing to see and um, there's actually a new Brooklyn club um, called Paragon that was um, founded by Boss's owner, John Barclay. Um, and earlier this year, it was open primarily as an invite-only club for a few months. Um, and last month, they finally opened to the public. Um, and what's cool about this venue is that it has two dance floors one upstairs and one in the basement. And then there's also a mezzanine looking over the upstairs dance floor. So technically there are three dance floors. Um, and yeah, I've, I've been really enjoying going out there um, and the lineups um, feel pretty similar to what we are seeing at BASA. Um, and there's also an identical, <laughs> Um, a checkered dance floor that is practically identical yeah. to <laughs> the dance floor at Bossa, which makes me um, feel like I'm on the Bossa dance floor again. Mm. Just a little nod. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that is really exciting to hear because it feels like from all the way over here in London, it sometimes feels like New York's really going through it right now. Like a lot of like scary incidents and like, do people feel safe? in the clubs is there any you know 
clear paths that emerging talent can take to try and rise up in the New York scene. But you have mentioned some quite promising leads there. So how do you feel about going out in New York right now? Um, Going out in New York has definitely changed in the past few months um, for me. Um, I think, um, yeah, yeah, zooming out a bit, um, I think a lot of people are on edge about incidents like uh, what happened at Boss and Bossa and Rash because um, it seems to be a part of an alarming wider trend of increasing violence in New York across the board. Um, yeah, so I think generally now people are more vigilant than ever and we're starting to have conversations um, about what safety and accountability can look like um, in nightlife, um, you know, because it's very clear that this can't just be a space where we can go to escape our problems. Like, you know, um, things are gonna follow us onto the dance floor. So um, yeah, I, I think we're thinking about the importance of having safety monitors on the dance floor um, and other communal practices outside the club, like buddy systems and making sure your marginalized friends have Uber to take them home at the end of the night. Um, and uh, yeah, there was recently a talk that took place at Elsewhere um, where um, folks were discussing some of these things and um, voicing their concerns. Um, so I think we're um, getting better at you know responding to these things in um, a prompt manner and you know looking out for each other um, and I also think clubs are trying to make an effort to step up when it comes to safety protocol in the bossa piece I write about how a stabbing that took place inside the venue last summer ended up compelling the club to implement more robust safety measures at the door. And I've seen something similar uh, happen after the pepper spray incident at Nowadays happened, which we're still, that incident um, is a bit more complicated because we know less about it. And a lot of us, we're, we're still very uncertain if that was um, a hate crime or not. But also notice that the clubs have reintroduced the practice of checking bags, which though it isn't a perfect practice and you know there is that uncomfortable resemblance to policing um, has definitely made me feel so much safer while clubbing in New York. Kiana, thank you for sharing all of this insight. You are now going to read some excerpts from your original article. I hope that this is going to entice all our listeners to go and spend some time with your writing. Um, let's hand over to Kiana, who's going to read from Bossa Nova Civic Club, Rising from the Ashes. On the evening of January 12th, 
Red lights blinked, sirens whined, and a fortress of fire trucks blocked off traffic beneath an overpass on Bushwick's Myrtle Avenue. Steely-eyed firefighters in the final stages of combating a third floor residential fire resembled action figures waddling through a large smoking dollhouse from a distance. One glided past the building's upper floors on an aerial ladder. Another on the rooftop appeared to strike a window below with a halligan. On the second floor, a firefighter shone his flashlight across the walls, ostensibly carrying out a primary search of the building. A growing crowd of onlookers formed across the street, some quietly recording the scene on their phones and walking away, others gesturing toward the building as they spoke among strangers. It is difficult for humans to look away from tragedy, even when it is close to home. First conceived as a punkish countercurrent to the venues of its time, there is much to appreciate about the shuttered 140 capacity club after a near decade in operation. At some point, most of its trusted regulars have brandished a laminated membership card at the door, instantly permitting them free entry for the night. A now defunct tumbler called Is Boss a Poppin' once queued in the no clubbers to make their way onto its checkered dance floor or to stay the hell home. In 2019, Bossa's free, fruit-flavored rave water inspired the creation of its own cheeky Instagram, the forerunner to a similar account documenting the club's infamously lengthy line, a rite of passage that proved to be almost as lively as the venue inside. Even New York's favorite club beverage, White Label Yerba Mate, is the unpretentious brainchild of Bossa's owner, and whenever a moderately comical incident took place at the club, memes hyperbolizing the event flooded certain internet circles before the venue flicked its lights on the next day. Many were shared by Bossa itself. I have fallen in love with music innumerable times at Bossa on any day of the week. It's the one club in New York that I could attend alone with the peace of mind that I'd run into a few regulars I could kick it with, or if not, choose to embrace my anonymity and dance my social anxiety away in the comfort of the omnipresent fog. On countless occasions, I've made my best drunken attempts to synopsize the past few months of my life to acquaintances who I've always shared a special connection with, but solely saw after dark at Bossa's neon-hued bar, dawdling over a mezcal sour. There would always be some regulars, there would always be some really random drunk bro or two. There'd always be a couple of DJs there to see their DJ friends, writer Emily Witt recalls at the club. It just felt like a rare place to have a spontaneous encounter with people you didn't know. The word community is often regurgitated in dance music scenes with a liberalness that in most cases is aptly met with a wary eye roll. But Bossa might have been the first club in Brooklyn's post-DIY scene era where regulars at least felt like they could collectively be a part of something culturally monumental. Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange. 
Kiana's feature, Bossa Nova Civic Club, Rising from the Ashes, is linked in the description of this podcast. If you want to go have a read of the full thing, I highly recommend it. We will put links to all of our reporting on the other incidents mentioned in our chat as well, if you want to read up on what has been going on in New York's nightlife scene in even more detail. I really hope that you enjoy this episode. You can, of course, browse our full archive on your favourite podcast platform. And whilst you're there, be sure to subscribe to The Exchange to receive updates from us. If you love this show, please do leave us a review as it helps get our stories to more ears. Until next time, take care.